maybe we seek a lot of alone and private spaces because it's the only time we maybe can suspend the feelings of shame. Getting Discomfortable with Paloma Medina. Paloma is a TEDx speaker, management trainer, coach, and entrepreneur whose work I first encountered at a masterclass that she did on the neuroscience of equity and inclusion. And I was really struck by Paloma's ability to take uncomfortable topics and root them in a lot of science and accessibility. And I've since taken a number of trainings with her and have wanted to have her on the podcast for quite a while. So I'm very excited that you're here. Thanks for coming, Paloma. I am so excited to be here. So I gave you a little bit of an intro there, but I have this story in my head that you have many interests and that you are following many different um career paths and obsessions. So I wanted to turn it over to you to kind of give us a sense of like, what's your journey been? And what's really uh, exciting you right now? Yeah, you, (laughs) your intuition is correct. I am Mm. all over the place. Um, In particular, right now, I think because of the pandemic and the way that in the beginning, it forced hard things and thus hard decisions um, that I had to make. But in hindsight, I realized just kind of edged me towards clarity about what matters more. And mm-hmm. and so that's been really, really, uh, in the end, it's felt like just really helpful. But yeah, I, um, I like normalizing that for some folks like myself, you can have these different like buckets of knowledge that you just find fascinating and that don't quite fit yet into your current career or or job trajectory, mm-hmm. but you you validate them in yourself and you're just like, I don't know, I'm just into it. And at some point, maybe it'll connect. And so psychology and neuropsychology for a long time were one of those buckets that just didn't quite connect to um, my immediate job or career trajectory. And then, of course, eventually, as you know, <laughs> it did. Mm-hmm. And it, it was very easy. And, and I feel like I'm in one of those places again where I'm like, oh, um, here's these other buckets that, so like one of the weird buckets is, I don't know that there's a name for it in my mind, but it's um, it's around the psychology of shelter, but also like the anthropology, like historical perspective on shelter, like human shelter hmm. um, and how that intersects with our current like ecological collapse situation that we've got facing. Right. Um, and I've just always been really interested in, in, I don't know that bucket and the, and for, for at this point decades, always reading about it a little bit. And also knowing that I don't have an immediate, I didn't have an immediate kind of plug of how it aligned, but, but also not feeling um, a rush to be like, Oh no, is this my new career path? Just like, I don't know. It's just this little thing that I keep, I just keep, researching into. Mm. What is nice is I am working on this manager training program that converges a bunch of those knowledge bases. It's called Managing in Uncertain Times. It's like six sessions together. It includes equity and inclusion into how we 
support managers, like making sure that they have those skills, but it also includes the basics of management that I've always loved, like the power of coaching as a very specific, very specific skill set, the psychology of why coaching works um, in management, all that stuff, um, which I don't know that was a part of the train the trainer program. I think that that you got to go through, right? I don't know that we talked a lot about it, mm-hmm. but it's been this other wing of that. I just like, it's a, it's a huge bucket that I really care a lot about. Um, so the manager training program is one thing that's been connecting a lot of these and that's been feeling really good. But then there's this other stuff that I'm just working on the side about um, this shelter thing. Like what, what is shelter? How do we have shelter psychologically work for human needs, but also work e- ecologically? Mm-hmm. For a very complex system that we are currently destroying. Um, so how might it do that? And I'm like, I know that has nothing to do with my corporate work, supporting companies and their managers. But maybe I have time now to to work on it. Yeah, I mean, there's from what you've just shared, there's so many threads that I'm now kind of like curious about exploring. And uh, I get the sense that you're you have a very sort of human centered approach. And the the rooting in your fascination uh, with neuroscience and neuropsychology really seems to bring that human element to anything, be it management or shelter or DEI issues. Uh, like, why is that so important to you? What's do you think your fascination with neuroscience is a fascination with humanity? Does that feel true? That is such a good question. Uh, no one's asked me that question before. Um, well, one of the things that I'm exploring right now is that maybe it's not working for me to be so focused on humans, mm. which which I'll explain in a second. But I, the, this other part of your question, which is like, where does that come from? I think my the main obsession for a while I thought was humans, right? Just like, whoa humans like Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they're so fascinating they're Mm -hmm. so fascinating but i think i think the my deep dive into equity and inclusion for a few years there just like this is all i'm going to learn about i just really i want to understand this and how it plays out in the workplace and how do we how do we be better about it right that actually made me realize that what i'm actually fascinated by is supporting diversity of cultures Mm-hmm. versus monolithic approaches mm-hmm. to cultures because i what i the reason i find humans fascinating is because is is when they get to be super weirdo different in how they show up right and and because that's my fascination then it makes sense that that maybe what the thing i'm most intrigued by is is how do we create worlds that support lots of different cultures that support lots of different humans versus saying this is the right way. Yeah. Yeah. And this must work for 90% of the human population, you know, um, (laughs) which was one of the frustrating things about, um, for me, one of the things that I found frustrating about the equity and inclusion kind of professional space was how many equity and inclusion professionals were like that, that we need to, we need to decide what is the way and this is the way and, and we're all going to get behind. <laughs> right. And I was right. like, wait, what? <laughs> right. Let, let's replace one mono culture with another mono culture, essentially. 
that was my experience of a lot of it. Um, and I think what I wanted is to is to be like, wait, what if what bad thing happens if we have 20 ways of approaching equity and inclusion in the workplace? Mm-hmm. Like, but let but support those to work to like fully test, prototype, test again, iterate, and find the things that work. There's so many kinds of companies, there's so many kinds of humans that work for those companies. Um, obviously, there's so many kinds of nonprofits and organizations and community groups. How can we possibly create a single roadmap? What if we just create more um, a capacity to iterate about around equity and inclusion? So everyone finds their thing, um, which is how I got to the question of, wait, is my focus humans? And is that maybe no longer helpful? Because via the work around shelter and anthropology and the psychology of it, like what kind of shelter actually supports humans' mental health? which turns out lots of it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And so then the question was like, well, which does? Like, have there been kinds of shelter that did support humans' mental health needs better? And turns out, didn't know this, but um, there's like years of data hmm. of what shelter works for humans. And it was shelter that, you know, a lot of it was shelter that um, supported communal living. Mm-hmm. Um, and cultural and economic interdependence. And so I was like, wait, wait. <laughs> so the, that is this, the, the current wing of research that I'm doing is like a lot of that shelter and that those cultures that supported that kind of shelter were cultures that also supported what's called an ecocentric view of the world and not a human centric view of the world. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wait, hold up. What? And so this ecocentric view of the world essentially says one of the reasons why current shelter doesn't um, support human needs and including mental health needs is because it overly placed humans at the center of the universe. Right. Wow. When really like for 10 million years, we've evolved with other species like really evolved at the DNA level to be constantly interacting with other species and plants and, you know, minerals and rocks and co-evolved. Co-evolved. Yes. Thank you. Co-evolved. Right. And they also evolved with us um, as one of the many species contributing to these ecosystems. And so all of a sudden, you know, in the past few months, I've been like, whoa, 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 wait, what? I think it sounds very helpful to consider that maybe one of the ways also the way that we had community was often through our friends, but sorry, that's how we think of it. But actually the way we often had community was through our work people and the way that we felt a kind of economic safety was through our companies. And, and all of a sudden those companies look different. Our coworkers are these little digital images on, on a screen. Mm. None of this is how we've evolved for 10 million years as a species. None of, none of the, the, the whole remote digital world. Um, and so that's a very long way of saying I'm sitting right now with this like, oh, wait, I wonder how much of my current approach and how I support managers and how they support their staff, including around equity and inclusion, is maybe also overly centered on humans versus on how we are part of this really pretty complex um, or not, I guess, ecosystems and, and nature and 
you know, communities and interdependence. And it keeps making the the individual manager overly um, parental, you know, and mm-hmm. overly focused on only. Um, I, I I'm going to stop talking because you can see where I'm <laughs> like I'm just like whoa whoa hold up hold up. Um, are these things in a very interesting way connecting to to the monoculture of companies and monoculture of equity and inclusion? What would equity and inclusion cultures, right? Equitable and inclusive cultures look like if we mimicked the really massive cultural diversity that exists in ecosystems when, when we know when we don't stamp them out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some people, by the way, some people call this ancient wisdom, you know, like indigenous folks are like, we've been trying to tell you mm-hmm. <laughs> for mm-hmm. 10,000 years that, you know, that that we have social, economic, um, shelter, equity, and inclusion systems that work. So I, I'm, I'm sure a lot of listeners are like, yeah, brah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. this isn't new. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Well, it, it like there's there's shame kind of skirting a lot of these topics. Like I'm I'm really seeing how, I mean, I'm struck by several things. I'm struck by this idea that so many of us humans think we want to be the center of everything. And we think, uh, you know, I see this with a lot of people, we want to live alone. You know, we think a lot of things that actually probably aren't healthy for us are good. And I'm seeing you kind of zooming back from that narrow-minded, perhaps um, acculturated perspective and seeing on a, on a meta systems level how actually we could totally shake things up and it might be much healthier. And I, and I, I, I really see your perspective, and I've always seen this, as like slightly outside of the control of mainstream culture, shame, you know, acculturated Western things have to be a certain way. Does that feel true? Like, do you feel like you have that perspective? I do, but I also feel that um, I think it's because all along I've rejected, I haven't like felt an affinity since I was young with a monocultural approach. Mm -hmm. And I just happened to live in a, in a country, the U S that is really, really a, a bit obsessed with monoculture. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever it is, whether it's it's equity and inclusion, this is the only way to do it, or whether it's like, you know, white nationalists being like, this is the only way to do it, or whether you know whoever, whoever it is in the U.S. We, I don't know that that we truly get to consider something other than monocultures, and so I would say the only reason I sometimes feel just on the edge of that um, is because I just. If you question monoculture as the first template, then everything else just kind of doesn't quite line up and you end Mm -hmm. up always questioning. You end up questioning a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I don't like to stay in question mode. As as you know, I really, um, I'm really fascinated by like, okay, based on this information we have, what are ways to move forward that are behavioral, that are systemic, Mm -hmm. that people can predictably depend on? from each other that are an improvement on the past um, ways of doing things. 
And so though right now, I mean, it probably you can hear it that I'm just like, whoa, I'm like in very, very exploration mode. Mm-hmm. Now that I'm realizing that maybe the core of what felt most fascinating to me was creating spaces for diverse philosophies and cultures, including subcultures to thrive and, and, and like deeply respect the fact that that's supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that maybe one template that we could look at as newbies, myself included, as newbies to this way of thinking about like, wait, if not monoculture, then what? What does it actually look and feel like? And I'm like, oh, wait, nature technically has these templates. Um, we've co-evolved for millions of years. We used those templates for a long time. This is not technically new to our species, though it may be new to this current, these generations that we're currently in. Um, but but yeah, the nice thing is um, there are always, you know, as you know, there's always people, once you start exploring the edges outside of the dominant paradigm, you find all these lovely humans that have been hanging out there for a while. <laughs> yeah. Being like, yeah, welcome to the party. It's really interesting here, right? And you're like, oh, how long have you been here? And they're like, oh, wow. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, I don't find that I'm at the edges of um, like at the frontier. Um, I just find that I'm, I'm, in, I'm intrigued about paving pathways from those who find themselves in the dominant culture and aren't, aren't finding happiness and wellness and health there to other options at the edges to be like, here's other options. Mm-hmm. Check out, decide for yourself. I mean, mm-hmm. you asked a question on shame. I've been thinking about when I, you know, I saw that we were, it was coming up that we we're going to get to talk. Um, and I know how much your work centers on, on just like exploring shame and what's the what with that, mm-hmm. not just the feeling, but and tell me if I'm wrong, almost like how we might be sometimes unintentionally using it as a tool absolutely, against each other and against yeah. ourselves. Um, sometimes intentionally, but I think often unintentionally using it as a tool. Yeah. I I'm been thinking about why is it that for so long I didn't question, for example, the monoculture approach that humans should be alone and independent and you know two car garage. I mean, I, I did question that part, but not a lot around it, not around yeah. the shelter. Um, and I was thinking about how so much of our culture tells us what to be ashamed about, and that there's a lot about us to be ashamed. <laughs> yeah, and so maybe we seek a lot of alone and private spaces because it's the only time we maybe can suspend the feelings of shame because mm. no one's there to judge us and see us be our full animal weird selves. Ooh, yeah, that hits me. Right? I mean, I don't know, question mark. <sighs> Including, you know, siling, siling ourselves as managers, as leaders, siling ourselves. Um, as experts, even. Siloing ourselves as experts means that we can't show up as like messy yeah. selves because then shame will be cast onto us by others who judge us as not being flawless enough, maybe. I mean, that's her <laughs> yeah. fear. I don't know if they will, but that's her fear. Yeah. And so instead, maybe we'll just shroud ourselves in certain um, ways of living through the world when really like we're such messy animals, obviously. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, you're. I think you're absolutely on to something there. That like the that privacy is this space to decide, and I'm sure that there is a healthy privacy that's needed. Yes, but this space to kind of image craft and hide certain things, and no wonder we want to live alone. And it really does all kind of connect to following monocultural rules. And that includes shelter and the way we work. Like, it's just, it's this, it feels like a slightly overwhelming system that all rides, at least to some extent, on this this feeling of shame. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think shame is obviously how dominant cultures can, you know, maintain <laughs> a lot of their power. It's not yeah. always economic or physical coercion, right? A lot of it is just psychological coercion, which is often uses shame. Um, and I, I mean, I know that I couldn't answer. I can't currently cleanly answer for myself. When am I seeking alone time to self-reflect, to experience? I mean, I have a, a friend that gave me this phrase and I was like, oh my God, I'm going to keep that one, which is um, alone time is often when you check in with your complex ecosystem to just be like, what's going on here? When mm -hmm. you recognize that it's like a bunch of bacteria. I mean, no joke, right? We're like a bunch of bacteria that we now know is affecting our um, neurotransmitters like serotonin and dopamine. Yeah. And, and those obviously completely affect how we feel and who we are and how we show up in the world. And so like, yeah, alone time is when you're like, there's a lot of ecosystems that I live within and I and myself are a weird little ecosystem and I get to just check in and we need some alone time for that. But I, I have a hard time right now being like, when am I seeking privacy and alone time to just focus on on me, my thoughts, how I'm doing, you know, or like commune with nature, like I would check in and just be like, what's up plants? You know, like I haven't, I haven't checked in with you all and you like <laughs> live with me. Um, and how are you like, what's, what is this? How y'all doing versus when am I seeking privacy and alone time? Because I need a break from managing my shame that others may or may not be putting on me. Yeah. I don't know right now. Well, first of all, I, I feel a bit of shame about the topic of my relationship with my plants. That's definitely an area of shame for me, but that's just an aside. Oh, and I I'm, really, yeah, I just, I feel like I, I keep having in my calendar that I need to have a plant date where I really just like get to know my plants better because a lot of them are inherited from a previous relationship. This is slightly sidetracked, but oh. that just sort of came up for me. It's like, yes, you're right. I need to stop and connect with my plants. But even then, to your point about like systems, that's me actually connecting with a system, isn't it? Yes. It's not necessarily alone time. No. And um, there's this, uh, this poet philosopher that I, I found very helpful while I was like trying to bridge myself from one place to the other around this thing. Um, David White, um, mm. I don't know if you know him, he yeah. um, has an amazing voice to listen to. First of all, it's very calming and soothing. Um, and two, he talks about that alone time that humans, speaking of human-centric, humans say alone, that they're alone. And they're, he's like, technically, that just means you're not in conversation with other humans, I think is what you mean by that. Right. But you could be not, you could be, like he said, it's funny when we say alone in nature. Mm -hmm. When like, you're clearly not al at all alone. <laughs> if you go and like, 
to the desert or forest. And in no way are you alone. Um, you're not alone in your house. You're, I mean, even if you don't have plants, you're surrounded by bugs. Let's be clear. They're everywhere. Yeah. You're surrounded by like really, really complex bacterial systems that again are part of how you stay healthy. You're not technically alone. Yeah. To say nothing of like a Buddhist oneness with the whole universe kind of feeling. That I mean, definitely, right? And so so maybe we just need more words for when we mean I want to be in a conversation with myself in this this little system. Versus when I'm in conversation with some other species, which again, we have evolved for millions of years with cultures that saw themselves in conversations with other species. They have existed longer than our current culture, which has no conversations with other species. Yeah. Or not, doesn't rather, does not normalize conversations with other species. We are the new ones. This is very, this is a new experiment. Um, so yeah, maybe we just say sometimes I'm alone with just conversations with myself. Sometimes I'm alone so that I can have conversations with other species. Sometimes I'm in conversation with other humans. But either way, there should be no shame about which one you're having. Yeah. You know? I mean, I'm I'm having a bit of an epiphany as I listen to you because it's occurring to me that, you know, I imagine that shame operated in a, in a different way in a hunter-gatherer culture or hunter-gatherer cultures. There were, I'm sure you know, many, many, many. Infinite. But, you know, knowing that a lot of hunter-gatherers are are thought to be animistic, you know, like mm-hmm. that they see themselves and nature and animals as all beings, they probably had shame towards how they treated animals directly and shame towards how they treated the earth directly in a way that we have completely um, gotten rid of. Do you think that's probably true? I don't know that they would translate it into their work of shame. I think, you know, there's shame. um, There's regret. uh, There's self-regret. There's disappointing yourself. There is feeling a negative confusion about yourself. And then there's shame. And shame is... You know, the way that it's defined and, you know, I mean, um, you explore this so deeply that I think of it as the way that we define it, that word in the U.S. Um, or I'm, I also, I'm Mexican. So, in, for example, in Catholic culture, Mexican Catholic culture, where I, which I also grew up within, um, shame is identified as something that is dirt, makes you a dirty, sinful, mm-hmm. flawed at the core, um, and that you should hide from others. And when we feel shame, often in like a U.S. or in my case, you know, Mexican Catholic culture, um, I know that we often seek to hide that part of ourselves from others Mm -hmm. Um, versus other negative emotions like regret, disappointment, including self-disappointment. We often have the the first impulse is that we want to talk to someone about it. Mm -hmm. We're not sure who, but we want to talk versus shame. You know, the first impulse is to hide it and to not disclose it to others. And so I don't know that like hunter-gatherer cultures, including those that still exist, I would I want to ask them, do you have a word for this feeling that you feel dirty and so deeply flawed that everyone will reject you and thus you must always hide that about yourself? Or 
what other like feelings and words do you have for the ways that we regret things we do, we disappoint ourselves, we feel confusion about why we can't be a certain way? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I actually don't know the answer to that. Well, I've definitely heard it said that other cultures have a hard time understanding what the West means by shame. There's some mm. uh, famous anecdotes about the Dalai Lama being asked about self-hatred, I think it was, and just being like, I don't, the translator and the Dalai Lama are just like, we we don't know how to make <laughs> sense of this concept even. That might be, um, right. you know, I don't have a direct line on the truthfulness of that, but I, I imagine there's no question that there are cultures that just inherently you get acculturated in a notion that you can never be bad or the concept of you isn't so singular that you can be carved out that way. Things like that seem very plausible to me. Right. Um, I have a, a friend who is this like really brilliant, um, I guess she says, I call it like a research psychologist. And she was, um, she got really interested in disgust as a feeling. Mm. Um and the idea of self-disgust, which she said was synonymous with shame in the U.S. and lots of um, cultures yeah, that, yeah. that use shame. And that to me was really interesting to be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Because from her, I've learned a lot about that the, the um, feeling of disgust is very unique amongst all the human feelings. Um she says that it's, you know, anthropologically or something, it's probably, she believes it's likely grounded in not wanting to be infected by others. Mm-hmm. And then it, once you become infected, you're aware that you're a vector. Right. And so you want to hide yourself. You want to hide that you could be a vector to others because they'll reject you socially. And I was like, whoa, 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 hold on. <laughs> well, and, and is there some also sense of protecting them from you? Maybe you think they should reject you so that you can protect them because now you're the vector. I don't know. That's a really good question. Yeah. And so I wonder if when she was saying, oh yeah, shame is another way of saying self-disgust, which is different again than sadness, disappointment, mm-hmm. um, confusion about why you're feeling a certain thing. Um, I Like let's say with your plants. <laughs> I, I, I don't think, I hope you don't feel self-disgust that you haven't taken time with your plants. I don't know. Well, I when I use the word shame, I use it as a spectrum. I use it quite broadly. I actually use it to include guilt and all the versions of mm. basically for me shame is any time I have an unpleasant sensation that kind of references me. And sometimes it's references me on a deep, you know, holistic toxic shame level and sometimes it just is an action that I made, something like that. Ah. So do I feel toxic shame about neglecting my plants or not being not really fully understanding their needs all the time? No, but I definitely feel more like a guilt type shame if if you mm. connect those two things. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean like looking at how all these different cultures have all these different ways of experiencing or not experiencing shame, that's what sort of drives me to create more of a spectrumic definition. Well, it's actually it's actually from affect theory, that's where I get it from. Oh, yeah. But it just seems a bit more like it suggests to people the way you're interpreting this emotion might be part of the problem with this emotion. Mm, right. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that being helpful, also placing that as a spectrum. So that, yeah, 
And and yeah, where is the line between disgust and self-disgust and shame? It it all gets very murky, but I think it's fascinating to think of shame has a sort of self-defeating quality sometimes, you know, like it's it's isolating us and and you know, it, it can lead to very serious things like like exile or sense of exile or suicidal ideation. And it's sort of like what could be the evolutionary purpose of that? But when you name this infection connection, it's like, okay, maybe there is some advantage to, under certain circumstances, thinking that you really do need to protect everyone else from yourself, which does seem to be at the core of some forms of toxic shame, which are, you know, you don't really need to protect anyone from yourself, but it feels that way. Yeah, I mean, I think that's where it gets tricky in that what kind of self-disgust is prevalent in in a lot of human cultures and what kind of self-disgust is maybe built into enforce a monoculture. Right. I was just thinking that. Right. And thus that self-disgust is no longer about you maybe actually protecting your your crew, your clan, right? from something in you that is actually going to be bad for them. Um, it's that they, it's that your clan in this case, say, you know, like in my case, again, uh, Mexican Catholicism or something mm-hmm. that monoculture that, you know, tends to be a monoculture says, Oh, your, your sexuality that, you know, um, I mean, pretty much any kind of sexuality besides the super normative vanilla um, heteronormative sexuality. Yeah. We're, we're going to label it as, a self-disgust shame that you should feel and that you should, you should be protecting the rest of society from it. Yeah. It's that toxic, um, you know, and then lots of people obviously are like, screw this. I'm <laughs> I don't know. Thanks. Turns out <laughs> that isn't true. This isn't toxic to my community. Um, I'm going to move to a different culture, hopefully, right. If there's that agency and choice and freedom, I'm going to, choose a different culture that that makes me realize this is i am not a vector mm-hmm. nothing about me is a vector in fact i am contributing to this really rich necessary cultural and ecological and sexual diversity mm-hmm. that makes things work so thanks but no thanks you know yeah hopefully and this is what's so great about your 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 new fascination with cultures and systems is that it inherently is bringing in enough diversity that you you don't get locked in a story of right and wrong. You you see a story of possibility. You're like, okay, there's the that way to do it, and there's the this way, and then there's the those ways. And it, I can only imagine how counter-shaming, as in like shame-relieving. Yeah. Because, you know, when I hear about indigenous cultures and the way that they held things like being two-spirit... I'm like, wow, that that kind of culture would have been so um, empowering for me mm-hmm. as a child compared to what I experienced as a closeted gay kid in a heteronormative world. So just, yeah. just to have any diversity that was also uh, allowed or respected would have been so healing for me. Yes. I mean, I think, and I think the presumption that that exact, you know, um, two spirit culture 
should work for everyone and should be empowering and, and freeing to all sexual beings. It's like, no, it, it maybe wasn't right. right. Cause it's still technically two spirited. <laughs> um, technically speaking, you know, there are some folks who are like, I don't feel like it, that quite maps to where I'm at. And I, I think the, um, but it, but it, doesn't make that culture obviously not empowering, freeing, and completely so nourishing for a lot of folks. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, yeah, and also let's make more or like totally right. Let's tap into more um, because there is no. I think this threat that um, whether it's about how we approach equity and inclusion or whether it's capitalism, whatever you know, that if we don't have a monoculture, one of my first fears that came up was like. I mean, there's two things. One, shouldn't some things be shamed? Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. can't are all cultures okay? Is this a free for all? Mm-hmm. Um, one and two. Like, doesn't that mean that there'll be constant fighting because we haven't agreed on unity? Mm-hmm. Which is super interesting. And in that I was like, wait, okay, so how did other <laughs> for three million years with this really rich diversity of cultures that weren't for whatever reason, killing each other, um, like, you know, in order to dominate and become a mo- the monoculture, to like win at the monoculture wars or whatever. Why did that work, right? Um, and the little bit that I researched into it is like, oh, because there wasn't a presumption that having more on your side did more for you, which is really interesting. Hmm. And I, if we think about equity and inclusion, I was raised by my, you know, activist fellow older folks since I was, you know, 14 or so and going to like anarchist camps and just like learning from people who've been doing it and thinking about this stuff for a lot longer. I was raised that like the more, the better we are constantly recruiting. That is what we do as we recruit more, more, more. Yeah. Because of the presumption that um, the resistance to more and more and more was futile that it was us or them. Yeah. And so I'm just like also sitting with like, wait, actually there's lots of current examples of how people just kind of let each other be. And do not presume that if we're not constantly recruiting from you, you might be recruiting from us. Right. (laughs) It's like, nope. Right. Lots of ways, lots of friendships that we currently have where we don't feel like our friends are recruiting us to their religion or recruiting us to their vegetarian, whatever. Yeah. I think we all have friends that we're like, yeah, they have a real different thing going on and we just hang out and it's fine because neither of us needs to recruit each other. And that seems to be working. It seems like, th- like uh, there's a lot here. <laughs> yes. Sorry. Feel free to be like, wait, let's go back to this thing. Cause I could do this all day. No, there's just, it's just like, so, I want to go in every direction all at once. And I'm like, oh, which, where do I start? And, you know, for, okay, so for one thing, I think it would be interesting to explore some of the science that I learned from you about our in-group, out-group bias, because that mm-hmm. might be telling in this. And then I also want to note that a lot of what we're talking about really fits into, um, like the evolution of consciousness type theories that people have in um, like integral theory or spiral dynamics or Keegan stages. This idea that kind of like the one of the higher levels is to be able to see 
and work in multiple systems rather than kind of like one system. And that's really kind of what I hear you saying. So it does feel like you're you're moving to a a, a level of consciousness that feels like it has more utility than what a lot of us have kind of been caught in. Um, so yeah, out of those kind of two things, I wonder, does something spark you? Yeah. I Okay. So wait, what was the first one you mentioned? It was the science of the in-group, out-group bias. Oh, yes. Have, thank you. Which is so fascinating to me. Which is so fascinating. So um, here's where things get weird. I went back to the research. Um, I've Rather, I started going back to the research. It's still early days. And I realized how much of that research was done on monoculture-obsessed culture people. Right. This makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I was like, wait. Based on the, the theories, yeah. Yeah. Versus how many of these, um, you know, neuropsychological and neurological research um, studies were done on peoples that, so like human peoples that do not subscribe to our obsession with monoculture and thus like, and human-centric approaches. It was? No. None. It wasn't. Not th- none that I have yeah, found. It, it, right. None. Yes. Whatsoever. Right. So it's it's all like mostly Western white men that are being studied traditionally. Is that true? No. It is. But that is not who, in some ways, that's who it's defining what the monoculture is. But as we can see from every, you know, anarchist camp I've ever been to, monoculture exists. Um, even if it's like a BIPOC anarchist camp, they're still just like, our way or no way. And I'm like, whoa. Right. right. Okay. Hold up. What? Uh, and as and a human centric, so both it's human centered versus you know, right, whole systems, you know, ecological system centered, um, and two, it's monoculture obsessed, which means growth is everything. In our case, our in group growth, right? We get more, mm. we learn more, we grow more, more of us, mm-hmm. which is which is dominance, but also shelters us from shame. Like, yes. it feels so good to feel like everyone agrees with me. Maybe I mean I think it also it also is creates a lot of shame because it's really hard you know because it's hard to fit a monoculture humans are weirdos yes humans are always (laughs) some version of a weirdo every person walks around being like i look like i fit the thing that society tells me is an ideal human but don't tell anyone that i actually have this thing it's so true and that thing might be a third nipple and people are like deeply ashamed about it or whatever. Yeah. Or it could be something really deep, right? Like deep sexuality stuff that they're hiding, um, abuse or being the abuser, like whatever history stuff, right? Who knows? But every human is walking around in this current monoculture cultures being like, I, there is a thing that is, I cannot let other people really know about me unless mm-hmm. they've already married to me and they can't get out. <laughs> I don't know, whatever, you know, or like mm-hmm. they've shown me that there's safety there in some other way. So so the point being, all of my research about what in-group, out-group bias is, is based on uh, a template, humans that come from a cultural template that is monocultured and human-centered. And, and to be fair, that is, you know, at best, depending on which anthropologist you talk to, is either only really been present this monoculture approach and a human centric approach from anywhere from like a thousand to maybe 10,000 years. Mm. I.e. like it's nothing. 
again, we're newbies. So it's like, I'm wondering currently if everything that I've been learning and teaching others about in-group, out-group things is, it's like taking a sample of like 12 to 15 year old kids and saying this represents humanity's potential and defaults. Right. And I think we would know like not 12 to 14 year olds are their own level of wacky. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're sort of referring to like developmentally the human race. Right. Or the, or the, or the, or the monoculture developmentally. Well, in this case, the 12 to 14 year old analogy, what we would, this current monoculture human centered approach is kind of the like, we are young in yeah. rebelling, doing all kinds of wacky things, um, taking a lot of drugs to see if that will work, you know, like whatever, <laughs> you know, like they're just doing it's stuff, so true. So true. you know, and that's kind of maps to our monoculture human centric cultures currently where we're like humans are our comfort is everything our pleasure is everything grow 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 more more yeah. more let's just go like yolo you know like yeah. and we'll take the earth down with us um which is a very very adolescent stage approach and totally and you know hopefully i mean there are i know some more like indigenous you know uh ecocentric whole earth centric uh cultures who are looking at us kind of like that they're just like oh gosh oh man they're gonna burn the house down mm-hmm. my teenagers they're gonna burn the house down i really hope they don't burn the house down but they don't see us as advanced mm-hmm. we're not acting very advanced mm-hmm. so all that is to say um I, that that is yeah that is a long way of saying I'm very much exploring the sample that we use to say what is universally true about humans, and that maybe you know we need a different sample. Mm-hmm. And more importantly, there doesn't seem to be anything. The more we learn that is that universally true about all humans, besides the thing that makes us animals, like we have DNA. We have complex systems we don't fully understand. They seem to exchange resources for more, you know, like we use resources, we give back resources. Man, no, we're animals. I'm, I mean, I'm reminded of my own journey in talking to people about shame and, you know, having my own insights and being like, hey, everyone, this is how shame works. And then quickly discovering, okay, so this is how my shame works. But mm-hmm. other people's shame works in surprisingly different ways. And I'm I'm also kind of struck by, in my own brain, there's like this story that for three million years, humans were primitive and that those are the children. Yes. And that we <laughs> are the adults. Yes. And what you're saying, which is so obviously true, is that that culture or those cultures were much more long lasting and mature and developed culturally than our culture is. Yeah. Cause if you see what they, their track record is like, things are cool. Yeah. They are our current evolutionary selves, by the way, these are Neanderthals. Right. These are it's, our it's current literal humans. Or, yes. Just straight up who we are now, just living with a different philosophy and thus behavioral patterns. And then as happens, I mean, this is why I'm using that analogy as happens with all happy families, you get, 
one weirdo, wacko teenager sometimes. And you're just like, whoa. And they are trying all kinds of things that hadn't been tried before. And the way to think about it from a, I mean, a truly evolutionary perspective, like really, if we are want to stick to evolution, is that this current version of our species will die and not reproduce mm-hmm. because we are so self-destructive as some species, you know, some little branches of every species just go and do weird things <laughs> and they die and they don't mm-hmm. continue. And in what, 10,000 years, something like that? Like a flash in the pan? A flash in the evolution. Again, 3 million years, everything's chill, working, people are happy, psychosis is super low. We have very, very low, like people who, so cultures that continue living in similar patterns as folks have been living for 3 million years, which I was taught don't really exist anymore. Turns out some of them do exist. Somehow they survived us, Mm -hmm. Um, but they're still around. Psychosis is super low. Um, depression is super rare. Addiction is pretty much not heard of. Um, depression is like the all the offset things of depression, suicide, all these things that we just think are normal part of humans, <laughs> you know, or maybe part of humans that just went a little awry. This one culture just like went to the left. And so I think the thing I'm thinking about, and that you know, does come back to this my current day to day job of you know, training managers and like coaching people through extreme burnout, which is what I mean, really big part of my current job is this one where coaching to people who are just like, I can't, I can't, Mm -hmm. I have the money, I have the house, I have healthy kids, I have whatever. And I just can't, I can't anymore. And you're like, oh, that's called burnout. Cool. Let's figure out how to help. As I'm thinking about that, part of me is like, a lot part of this is like us not being taught about three million years of working cultures. And and what part of this, you know, is really just the flawed human that will always be flawed. Mm-hmm. When really we might just, I think what's really hard is, um, and I think we've all had people in our family that were so, went so off the the healthy rails, right? Whether that was through because of difficult things like abuse that then led to addiction or because that was just socially, whatever. They do sometimes literally burn the house down. Mm -hmm. They do sometimes deeply hurt their fellow family members. They do sometimes, right, cause death in others. Um, And I'm, I think where I'm centering myself and being like, For myself, uh, I don't feel regret or shame realizing that I may self-categorize as contributing to or being part of a culture that places itself in its pleasure first above all other persons, which, you know, a lot of these cultures call other animals and species persons. Mm -hmm. And if I don't want to be part of that, um, because it doesn't feel right anymore. What is the the road, the like sobriety road yeah. to reconnecting with the basics of what actually is a happy, good, whole, purposeful life? It's a hard question. It's a hard question. I don't, and but I don't have to feel shame about it. Whatever, you know, however I'm self-defining shame, I don't have to feel, I can feel um, curiosity 
Yeah. Yeah. And and this, this is something I've noted about whenever I've been in a training with you, that you find ways to teach and systems, like very proactive solutions that are very not shaming. And like, I really appreciate that about your approach. And, and I also appreciate it. And you've been saying this all along, but that's just one way of doing it. Yes. And if there's some other group that like wants to use shame or do whatever, then great. Like, I don't have a monopoly on what the best strategy is. Yeah. And that was really helpful for me personally, because I really got polarized into the camp of like, shame bad, never shame anyone. No. And now I see that th that's a monoculture right there. Yeah. It must work sometimes. I don't know. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. It works against corporations. We've seen that. That is true. Oh, they hate shame. <laughs> <laughs> They're so allergic to it. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I'm hearing this like tough question. It doesn't really have an answer per se about like what it, well, well, yeah. So here I'm already trying to monoculturize it. What is the solution to get out of this problem in one way? <laughs> You see, my brain is just so conditioned that way. It is. I've been so. If this, in case this is helpful, I've been catching myself um, in real time and being like, "Oh, right, sorry. Um, I wonder what has worked for others, or I wonder which one calls the most to me that has worked for others." Mm -hmm. So that it reminds me, there's lots of ways that might work for me, because there's lots of ways that work for others, and. And to stay curious about which one will work for me next. And like my current, you know, um, what will support me in my depression? What will support me in like how I rebuild community? What will support mm. me? But first, knowing that there's a lot of wisdom out there um, and that I get to explore it and that all of it can be interesting, but I'm sure some of it will just speak to me in a way that I don't have to put words to. And that's how I'll know, you know, I'm like, okay, go towards that thing. Um, in the way that it sounds like, right. You hearing about like two spirit being like, whoa, that instantly there's something inside that tells me this is closer to home. Yeah. Ooh, I love this because, you know, I get so caught up in got to give advice, got to tell people how to do the thing. And, and what I'm hearing here is more like, Hey everyone, like what are you doing? What's what's working for you? Like this this is kind of working for me. This isn't working for me. Like and it, it and it, it actually feels like a relief. Like on the one hand there's like shame saying AJ be an expert and be smart. And then the other hand it's like boundaries and freedom for everyone to do their their thing themselves and I don't have to take on any responsibility for for fixing or telling other people how to be which is, you know, probably me projecting my own shame anyway. So I'm feeling like a kind of freedom, a relaxation, a lightness. And yet I still gravitate to some of the suggestions of like, yeah, I'm going to try to have self-compassion around this journey rather than shaming myself. And, and I'm going to try to do this reframing that we're both now caught in doing, like where I just notice when I'm thinking in that monocultural way and just try to open up. Mm -hmm. Just Yeah, be like, huh. Yeah, it doesn't, um, you're not giving up your right to then later have boundaries, right? You're not, you're not, you can say like, this works for me. Um, I really respect this thing that's working for you, but also don't call me that word. <laughs> right. Like that, right. that doesn't feel good. Thanks. You know, 
I think that's what we forget. Sort of a balance. Yeah. Is that like, it's not a free for all. It's a curiosity for all. Right. And that, that gets to your question of like, shouldn't some things elicit shame? It's like, right. It's not a free for all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. You, when you join a culture, that culture gets to say, this is the stuff that we're not cool with because we see this and that impact. And those folks who join that culture and find that to be their home, it, that works for them. But there should be choice, right? To be like, hey, on this, in this culture, we don't do this. Like in this culture, we eat, we're vegan, right? We don't kill other animals. And that's mm-hmm. really important to us. Like that is a boundary that we maintain in our culture. But we're not going to go and attack the other ones because they like, eat animals. <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that, that's neither here nor there about how we're living our lives. But we don't, we're not cool with that. Not, not here. Not in this home, right? Which is cool. It's like, oh mm-hmm. yeah, cool. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm really inspired and and thinking back to you saying like, I'm interested in shelter and to see, I don't (laughs) know if this all falls under shelter, but I was like, this is some deep shelter. (laughs) Where do we get to go home? And does it look like everyone else's? Wow. So I'm curious. um, I, I guess I'm getting to the part where I want to get a sense of the audience knowing how they can engage more with you and learn more of your ideas. So I'm in this space of wondering when will these things be things that we can engage with you around? What's what's the plan for this, these really interesting thoughts? That is a good question. I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> um, Great. I love that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think what I really what I where I'm at is that I'm I'm working with a bunch of clients um, through the manager training programs, the one on one coaching, and the kind of leadership um, consulting through June of this year, and then I don't I kind of don't have contracts after that that aren't um, besides there's one, but it's kind of like I, I just have a ton of time. I essentially shut down things so that I would have the time to be like in what way am I useful next to myself? Um, And because I am an educator, I think in the end, I know that I, that's my thing. Mm. I like facilitating access to information that I think is useful, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And then when I see the information that's useful to others, I'm like, cool, then this is where I'll kind of focus on facilitating that information it seems to be resonating this particular part seems to resonate for others so i know that it'll be something around that um but i don't know what it is like is it uh, i'm really fascinated with unschooling um anyone has any interest in reaching out to me about how they run an unschool i know a little bit i'd have a lot more um versus you know just doing corporate trainings or is it that um people if people want to reach out to me because they're like we are a company that wants to integrate how to not just be human centered mm-hmm. to maybe be a lot more like whole earth system movie centered, whatever that word is. Um, there's lots of words for it, but, um, and we see how that could support the well being of our employees. I mean, that starts tracking for us and, and the way the kind of company we are cool. I want to talk to you. Mm. How are you doing that? How might we do that? Um, but no, I don't actually have a thing. I have my website. People can, um, I don't have like a newsletter. I don't do that. Just kind of, um, I I post things like this, like podcasts and people can reach out to me and connect to to me through the, through that. But I'm not on social media because not my house, (laughs) not my home. (laughs) (laughs) 
uh, the yeah. dealer come to me. Um, so <laughs> not helpful in that way, but, um, but yeah, I think my website, people can reach out to me there and it's been really nice to, um, get messages from, from folks as I do these, you know, these kinds of podcasts where I start being like, here's a new thing that I'm trying to work through. Um, that what I found is a growing network of people also deeply curious and in the, the like, huh, phase as well mm -hmm. for themselves. Um, and that is the coolest part of this. Like, mm. So yeah, that's a long way of saying, find me on my website and reach out. If you're like, tell me more, or we're doing a similar thing, or here's a book that I found that was really helpful to you know, explore this or that that you mentioned. Awesome. I'll, I'll put the uh, link to your website in the show notes so people can find you and engage with the various things on there. And I'm just like really inspired and excited to see how this journey that you're on progresses. And I really respect that it's like, who knows, it doesn't have to be some, you know, uh, saleable thing at this moment or ever, perhaps. And so I just like, as I talk to you, I can see my own brain wanting to do some reframing and grieving. I can see, mm. I can feel both. It's like, I want to have a good cry about certain things that I've been attached to and I want to reframe. And it's, uh, it feels really important what you're saying. Oh, a good cry. It's one of my favorite phrases. Yeah. 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 For some reason, this conversation, I feel like I need a good cry afterwards. Yeah, do that. Oh, yeah, I'm, <laughs> that's exactly what I'm going to do. Yeah. Mm. Well, thank you for letting me just completely go with uh, authentically where my brain has been at. Um, you know, some part of me, I think, is like when people talk to me, they, I feel like, oh, I should stick to the management training, which I do still believe in and I love and like because that's the thing that people know me for the equity inclusion because that's the thing that people know me for. But mm -hmm. I don't know why I just knew that with you. I could be like, well, mm -hmm. it's a little bit different now. Yeah. It's inspiring because part of me is like, are you going to be this shame guy forever, AJ? And I feel like a <laughs> sense of invitation from you and, you know, like it can be whatever I want, <laughs> you know? Yeah. You, you, I mean, you will always be changing. So yeah, you get to show as much of that as you want. Yeah, totally. Totally. Well, thank you so much, Paloma. It is a pleasure talking to you as always. Yeah. So, so happy to talk to you. So like, so nice also to, you know, just know that you're continuing doing this work. So it's so great. Thank you. Yeah. And I can't wait to uh, hear more about your journey. So maybe, maybe sometime in the future, I, uh, I could have you back on and we could see where this leads because I already feel like. I want season two of this line of thinking. Yeah. Ask me in August is what I'm kind of penciling in. Like I'll have some prototype of something rolling to just keep, okay. you know, just keep <laughs> testing, seeing what it is. What's the thing. Maybe it's burnout camp for adults. I don't know. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love it. All right. Okay. I will check back in then. Thanks Paloma. Okay. Thanks AJ.